It's Cape Inn Report and I'm your host Maureen Aylward. Our topic is the coastal birds of Cape Inn and are they in peril? Here with me at the table are my guests Deborah Kramer, a voice for the environment in Gloucester and also for our country for years, um, a visiting scholar at MIT's Environmental Solutions Initiative, Scott Memhart, a Ward 1 counselor who's entering his third term unopposed uh, this fall, and also the owner of Cape Pond Ice. And sitting next to me is Chris Leahy, a professional naturalist and conservationist, also recently retired from Mass Audubon. And you're a recognized ex expert in birds and insects. Welcome to the conversation about our treasured visitors and friends, um, our little beings that um, bring so much joy to our lives and, uh, and what we see when we're walking on the beach. Um, a lot of seabirds um, and coastal birds, shore birds, um, are having a difficult time right now. And so in, in our conversation today, I'd like to touch on the piping plovers in Gloucester, but also um, wanted to talk with all of you about uh, the bigger picture first, to put some things into perspective. And Deborah, I'm going to start with you. Um, how did you get involved uh, in your work over time? And what do you, and sort of jumping forward, um, what do you think is the most pressing issue with uh, shorebirds right now? That's a complex question. It is a good. <laughs> Take your best shot. It's a good question. <laughs> um, I, my interest in shorebirds began actually when I started looking at horseshoe crabs. And I went to Delaware Bay and I saw thousands of horseshoe crabs coming into spawn on the Delaware, Delaware Bay beaches and thousands of shorebirds eating the horseshoe crab eggs, and the birds were frantic. They were really skinny. They were eating as fast as they could, and I wondered where they had come from, that they were so hungry, and where they were going that they were in such a hurry. And that's how I started looking at shorebirds. And writing about them, too. Yeah. Um, and, and horseshoe crabs. Yes, horseshoe crabs. I remember getting, and I remember finding them on the beach. Um, and um, so, so what do you think is our most important issue with, with coastal birds right now? Well, and you guys may have a different perspective on this. It was a shock to me um, when I asked one of the scientists I'd been working with to calculate the losses in shorebirds flying through North America. And he basically told me since I had been graduated from college, which was a long time ago, but not that long ago, um, the populations of the birds whose numbers they were able to monitor had dropped by 70%. And that's, you know, that can be writ even larger than that in one sense. I mean, if you look at global bird populations, uh, currently 15% of all the bird species on the planet are endangered, not 15 percent are endangered in, are in danger of extinction. So that's that's in other words, they may be gone in one sense mm -hmm. uh, because in some cases there's nothing that can be done to, to do that. And then there are several levels below that. So bird populations in general, and that of course includes birds on Cape Ann, um, are having their problems. Mm -hmm. uh, and that the, the spectrum of problems is. Uh, a bit daunting. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What are you seeing, Deborah? Well, uh, uh, just another way of looking at the number you just gave. Historically, before we arrived on the scene, 
you would expect one bird extinction perhaps every thousand years. In my lifetime, I think there have already been eight or nine. Um, in terms of what the issues are, um, one really big issue is habitat loss. They're losing their homes along the edge of the sea because we're encroaching on their homes. And then coming up, the change in the global warming is going to affect that even mm -hmm. more. And sea level rise will des destroy uh, certain habitats. Or the beach too. nesting. Yeah. yeah, so Chris, um, what, do you, what are you seeing? Um, and, and on Cape Ann too, I mean, larger, what you just gave us a Yeah, same. A, I mean, again, just a, a bit of perspective. If we go, you know, back to um, even like 1800, for example, and look at shorebirds, focusing on shorebirds, the shorebird populations of North America were immense. We're talking about millions of birds. And at some point, um, somebody perceived, oh, there's a market here. Uh, game hunting was huge. People were making huge amounts of money. And just to give one anecdote. Food, plumage. Uh, not, well, that was later. Oh. No, first of all, food. Okay. And uh, there were anecdotes, there are many anecdotes, but the one that, one that sticks with me is um, on Nantucket Island in the fall, there would be these immense fallouts, as the ornithologists say, of migratory golden plovers, Eskimo curlews, now probably extinct, and other shorebirds. The um, market gunners knew this, headed for the island, and uh, there was this great fallout. They shot, and they shot, and they shot, until they ran out of shot and had to send back to the mainland for more ammunition, meanwhile filling barrels and barrels of uh, full of golden plovers, which were salted down and then taken to the Boston market mm -hmm. for food. These were sold in restaurants as delicacies and whatever. Those populations at that stage diminished by, well, you know, 70%, something like that, maybe more. Mm -hmm. um, we've had a lot of protection efforts since then, of course. Um, and there are people that will say, well, our shorebird populations have recovered. They haven't come close to recovering to those historic sort of levels. Mm -hmm. And now, as Deborah was pointing out, um, they've got these other threats. We're no longer killing them by the thousands by shooting them. But we're, you know, um, destroying their habitat through climate change, um, mm -hmm. disturbing them in, in in many other ways. So, shorebirds mm -hmm. are very hard hit. So they're they're in uh, serious decline. Shorebirds are in serious decline, but they're also threatened. Um, and let's let's go right to the uh, piping plovers here in Gloucester, because uh, Scott, I want to bring you into the conversation. And certainly, this is getting a lot of attention on Cape Ann and. Uh, especially on uh, Good Harbor Beach, um, we had a pair, a uh, nesting pair, and they also had um, several chicks. And it's capturing an imagination for lots of folks here. Um, and that's wonderful, I think, highlighting it. But it's also highlighting what we've lost um, in a lot of ways, that the piping plover um, population has declined so that we only have one nesting pair. Um, on Good Harbor Beach. So Scott, from your perspective as Ward 1 counselor, what is the city doing? What has, what has, the, what is, what has the city done? Because I guess it, it has done a lot of really good things. And Deborah and Chris like also jump in here um, when we're talking about what the city of Gloucester has done. We're doing some good. And it's, it's hopefully it's not too late for us. I mean, although to get to Good Harbor Beach, you drive by the stop and shop CVS Plaza. <laughs> which is all filled marshland as part of that habitat that we yeah. wiped out in a way. 
Um, but this year was really a remarkably um, positive success story for Gloucester's Good Harbor Beach plovers. Totally. Um, we had three chicks that survived and fledged out of a nest of four. And uh, I think that's three that fledged and, and flew south. Um, that that's, makes a total of four now since uh, for the last four or five years that have survived. So last year we had a zero success rate, unfortunately. And mm -hmm. that was the year they nested in the Good Harbor Beach parking lot. So this year they were able to nest in the dunes and uh, we worked with our partners at Greenbelt at a fence enclosure um, and carefully monitored the birds and protected them from a lot of human intrusion. But the city implemented a series of actions, including a new ordinance that prohibited dogs on the beach after April 1st, which was a month earlier than usual, and also efforts to limit littering, which would attract predators. Um, and generally, um, we're able to enforce that. We're, we're trying to break old habits. Mm -hmm. And people here in Gloucester and people that come to Gloucester enjoy our beaches, and we like to enjoy our beaches with our dogs if that's part of our family. So it's a new habit to teach and educate people about, understand mm -hmm. why this is important. So there's always always uh, some kind of uh, um, uh, blowback on people who are have limited access to something that they used to have access to, right? Um, especially dogs. But dogs are particularly um, aggressive towards birds or thre threaten birds. Um, you know, Deborah, uh, do you have some comments on their? Um, I don't, the, the I don't issue. I don't know if I would say they're. I, I I don't know if characterizing them as aggressive is the is the way that I would do that necessarily. But there's a lot of studies that show that dogs harass birds. And, they stress them, you know, and in the broadest sense they, of that word. They stress them. So when dogs are in the vicinity the birds don't feed as much and when they do feed they feed more slowly and they spend less time in the areas where they like to feed and all of that is really important because in order to make these long migrations and the piping plovers in Gloucester may be going all the way to Bermuda they need to gain a certain amount of weight. Mm -hmm. But I think in somewhat in defense of dogs, dogs are you know, not, you know, the key villain necessarily. They're certainly a factor, but there are many other That's factors, true. other predators, uh, raccoons, which we, of course, have increased the population of by having, you know, open trash cans and things like that and providing yeah. things. Uh, Seagulls. Crows, Seagulls. Yeah, all things like that. And, and again, perspective-wise, you know, piping plovers used to nest basically on any, um, you know, plausible, uh, barrier beach, sandy habitat. Um, then this uh, hunting era that I mentioned came in. They were decimated like the other shorebirds. Then they recovered. And going back into the 1950s, we again had piping plovers on virtually all appropriate habitats on beaches from you know Cape Cod, right? In right the in the 50s. In the 50s. As recently as the 50s. But then another decline started, and that's when Mass Audubon, for example, got involved. Um, and at first it was curious, like, what's going on, you know, and it certainly wasn't too many dogs on the beach. And what we discovered after doing some, you know, field research was that what it increased was vehicles driving on the beach. So you had vehicles driving on these beaches, the plover's nest on the upper beach, 
the young birds are what's called precocial. So as soon as they hatch, they're up and about and feeding and whatever. <laughs> and in order to do that, they have to go down into the intertidal zone. Tire tracks across the, the beach between those two sectors. The young piping plovers come in, fall into the ruts. Next vehicle comes along, squash plover. And that was responsible for that decline. And that then created, because Mass Audubon was in the midst of what I think of as the plover wars, and I was head of conservation at Mass Audubon <laughs> at the time, uh, we started working with towns, not to ban vehicles, but to restrict them so that you know we could have our beaches and our plovers at the same time. Well, I want to tell you, blowback uh, barely describes it. We had death threats to our... Uh, young wardens yep. and staff and mm -hmm. things like that. Mm -hmm. But in the end, the good news is people don't want to squash piping plovers. They're wonderful birds. I mean, and so gradually, gradually, um, uh, people got it. And, and we won, so to speak. In other words, there yeah. were no, more people who said, oh, you know, these are... We want to do, we want to help these And that's birds. exactly what's and happened here exactly, in Gloucester. Exactly. So Gloucester has its challenges on Good Harbor Beach. And um, there have been some things where this this year that the, the fencing was taking away a little earlier than um, maybe perhaps should have, or and, and also some um, beach ma maintenance. Scott, could you talk about some of the well, challenges that... We, we, re we preserved the beach and set a portion of it aside up by the dunes for the nesting birds starting at the end of April. And, uh, that, and that extended all the way through April, May, and June, right up to July 4th. And of course, by July 4th, it's a busy place, Good Harbor Beach. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, we, were, we were very fortunate this year because June was a relatively wet, mild, uh, not a good beach month. And that gave our birds an extra real shot in the arm, I think, a real chance. Mm -hmm. um, so th that was part of what made... And, and then come July 4th, we took down the fencing, the birds were fledged, they were ready to fly south, and the beach has been, been largely opened up now to all comers. Right, so what kind of challenge does that pose to the birds, though, if you're pulling some things um, down early, and or perhaps, should, should the fencing stay up a little bit longer, Deborah? I think so. There are many cities and towns and state beaches in Massachusetts where the fencing is kept up until the birds actually fly away. That was not the case here. If the fencing had been taken down on, let's say we'd had a nest on Coffin's Beach and the nesting had been, the fencing had been taken down, I don't think we would have been so concerned about it because it's only a small hop over to cranes where the birds are very well protected. In this case, there was ample evidence that the enclosure was serving as a refuge for the birds when the beach was so very, very crowded. And piping plover chicks love to eat in the rack line. And that's the only place where there was rack because the beach rake was taking away all the rack. Mm. So I think we would have, oh, and it was the only refuge during the storms because it was the only place that had the vegetation in it. And that, hills because they were because they weren't going into the dunes for some reason. So it also had the relief valve of the marsh right. for these birds, which wasn't a particularly pressured environment relative to the bathers right. and the people at the beach. Right, that was a wonderful, wonderful thing. When the tide was high, though, they were in the yeah. they were in the enclosure. So I think we would have felt a little more comfortable if the fencing had stayed until the birds actually left. 
the way it's done on many other beaches. In addition to which, it helps protect the birds from the um, amazing sports activity <laughs> that is taking that place. That happens on the beach. That happens on the beach. Soccer There's and soccer. volleyball. There's volleyball. Well, unfortunately, just as the birds were getting on their feet, literally having hatched, we had a, a eight-team beach soccer tournament on Good Harbor Beach, which had been authorized and permitted uh, before the Plover ordinance was put in place. And that's something that we'll study and try and streamline better this coming year. But mm -hmm. they were literally right up against the plovers fencing. And inevitably, there were birds that were flying into the enclosure and, and it very nearly took the life of one of our little yeah, plover one chicks. Them, one of them got Fortunately, hit. it didn't. But, mm -hmm. uh, but that was a balance. It's a balance. And one of the really remarkable things about Good Harbor Beach, I think, and, and Gloucester is that I've, I've been to a lot of beaches where there's shorebird management. And um, you may have other perspectives on this. I, the volunteer team at Good Harbor Beach was an amazingly committed team. That, These are our volunteer piping plover monitors. Yeah, they showed up on the beach at dawn and they stayed until 9.30 or 10 at night. So there were many fewer incidents with dogs because the monitors were on the beach. There were many fewer, um, those birds would have been hit by many more balls if the volunteers hadn't been there. Um, talking to all the people on the beach. And the, they did an amazing, I think, um, public education campaign. They had two really beautiful signs and- Chicks on the beach. Chicks, Chicks on, on the, the beach, beach, which was misinterpreted by a few people. <laughs> that was um, tongue in cheek <laughs> intentional, yeah. understandably perhaps. <laughs> and yeah, it's cute. And, yeah. Um, yeah, it was That's great. It. And, and what it ended up doing was it ended up requiring on those busy weekends, usually at least three or four volunteers on the beach because there were so many people coming to ask questions and wanting to see and wanting to learn that you couldn't really answer everybody's questions, give them your binoculars, um, and watch out to make sure that the chick wasn't gonna run into the hibachi. <laughs> and far from having a different perspective, I, I think that's right on and you know uh, mass audubon has this coastal waterbird program we hire an army of interns for the summer or whatever but we're based where the largest populations of piping plovers are on the south south of austin kind of thing and they're paid and they do exactly what these volunteers have done here and i couldn't agree more the underscore yeah. the education is a huge part of it just interacting with people because people what people don't know from piping plovers. Right, right. And once they see them and understand that they have these long migratory issues and that yeah. they're federally in, they're federally threatened. It's huge. And they all wanted to see the little fluff balls yeah. on the oh, sticks. They're running. so lovable. Right. Yeah. They're yeah. And lovable. so I, I was on that beach a lot and I very rarely experienced any hostility from anybody. Mm -hmm. And people would come back repeatedly. They would yep. to find out how the chicks were doing. Yeah, it's really a fascinating thing seeing the this love for the piping plover, the awareness. Um, how can that extend to other shore birds and understanding um, that their their um, their case? Just to change the topic for a minute and look at climate change, because we're coastal towns here in Cape Ann, um, and we do have an amazing 
array of birds that travel through here, especially in the wintertime. But climate change is changing things for us um, and bird populations. And Chris, I guess I'll shoot the first question to you is, what are we at risk of losing uh, with climate change, the threats mm -hmm. that climate change um, we face with climate change, especially around uh, ocean acidification and the mollusk mm -hmm. population, which is part of the food source. Can you kind of pull this together for us? Yeah, well, simply that, as you indicated, that Cape Ann is a, coming from former Mass Audubon staff, Cape Ann is a wonder, and a Cape Ann resident, Cape Ann is a wonderful place for birds at all, all months of the year. But it would probably surprise people to know that people come literally from all over the world, bird watchers here, mainly for the winter birding. Uh, uh, huge numbers of migratory birds uh, coming from northern breeding grounds starting in sort of late October, November. You know, you can go to a place like Andrews Point, Halibut Point or whatever and see on some days hundreds or thousands of, of gannets, these yeah. huge, almost albatross-sized birds, yeah. plunge diving from the air on catch fish. They're my favorite bird, by the yeah, way. Yeah, beautiful. It's, you know, <laughs> extraordinary birds. And, um, and you know, also large numbers of things like loons and uh, these auks, uh, these kind of little penguin-like birds and things like that. Are the auks new or have they been around? For oh, no, no, they've been around. This is the, same, the group of birds that penguins, or penguins, uh, puffins belong yes. to. And of course, everybody knows about puffins. Puffins are one of our rarer auks here. They do occur annually. Yes. But we have, you know, four or five other species that are sort of quite regular. So, okay. So all of these winter birds and this great variety of them. And we have, them, we have this very spectacular duck called ah. Harlequin duck, Harlequin. Uh, which looks like the, the one of the uh, folk names is lords and ladies because the, the males have this just spectacular red and blue and white polka dots and, you know. Iridescent. Yeah, yes, sort of. Uh, they're, they're great birds. Nobody can see mm -hmm. a flock of Harlequin ducks. And they're also very active. Uh, the Latin name is Histrionicus Histrionicus. And that's because on a quiet day, you can hear them sort of piping and talking to each other, mm -hmm. and they feed in the intertidal zone. Anyway, lots of variety. Needless to say, all of those birds feed on something. Almost all of the sea ducks, including the beautiful harlequins, uh, feed on mollusks. Uh, they dive for the mollusks, they ingest the mollusks, they digest them with their, uh, in their gizzard, kind of, um, they don't chew them. When you say uh, mollusks, are you talking about limpets and snails and the, mussels? The whole, and... All of these different birds. So we have three species of scoters, we have a beautiful, another beautiful duck called long-tailed duck, uh, the harlequins we mentioned, and a number of But in others. terms of what they're eating, what would they're the e They're eating the spectrum of shellfish, okay. everything from right. limpets, which is what the harlequin ducks are picking off the rocks, right. to our eiders, which we have a wonderful growing population of, which dive for larger mollusks or whatever. Okay, so ocean Clam, acidification. Clams. What's that? Clam. Clams. Clams. Yes. Any mollusks. Periwinkles. Scallops. Scallops. Yeah, okay. all of those. Um, so ocean acidification, what does that do? It uh, erodes the shells of mollusks, so it decreases mollusk populations. You decrease the mollusk population, and guess what happens to the birds? Right. So. Yeah. What about saltmarsh sparrows? Do we have any... Well, saltmarsh sparrows. Do we have any up here? They have another. There, I once found a pair of saltmarsh sparrows in the salt marshes behind Good Harbor Beach. Uh, I haven't been back every year to to check on them. It's not they. They are semi-colonial. They're weird birds. They're they're, Is there they're hard distinctive birds about it. Saltmarsh sparrow. In case, well, in case I see yeah, one. Yes and yes. no. <laughs> if, you look, if you looked at one, you'd say there's nothing distinctive. That's not actually true. But they are um, now endangered. Um, largely, well, there's a bunch of things going on. One of them being chemical toxicity in the marshes, but another one just being they nest exclusively 
in short grass salt marsh. Yeah. And guess what's happening to that? With, less and less. Uh, uh, flooding. Rise, flooding. Yes. Coming up. And, and they don't, they're not going to go inland and nest in some other kind of grassland. That's yeah. their habitat. So, so. Um, in terms of the city, Scott, um, the city has done a lot of work in resiliency. Um, has it turned its eye towards the, nat the natural world in terms of like bird populations and um, especially since we're talking about birds? Is part of that resiliency a conservation mindset? I would say that, that that's further down the road, that most of the city of Gloucester's concern about coastal resiliency right now is focused on the infrastructure, rise, infrastructure. of the Im impacts of sea level rise on our mm -hmm. sewer pumping stations, mm -hmm. on the sewer pumping substations, and on those key arteries and roadways that we know get flooded periodically, whether it's at the Riverdale Mills or on the fort or on the causeway and at the Gloucester High School. So those are the kinds of impacts. So I would say that in terms of the city's planning process, I'm not aware of those environmental impacts mm -hmm. in terms of the natural habitat and the bird bird populations being very high up on the city's uh, agenda. How as, could as that yet. get How could that get higher up in, in the city's agenda? Well, I'm in sure terms I'm, of understanding, like, and I'm putting you on the spot, um, the uh, environmental impacts, both for birds and and other. Uh, I'm uh, not mammal sure we creatures. can. I think we need to worry about ourselves here first. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, the high school tough. parking I, lot. Next time I see Governor Baker, we, you know, we're, we're talking about trying to protect the high school parking lot. But I, in terms of habitat, is there a habitat well, loss with putting a, a seawall in to protect? There's certainly impacts. Okay. I was just going to say, in some cases, though, the goals would overlap. They're the same. Yeah. Um, because this is in the driving. Right. Nobody nobody yeah. wants to lose Good Harbor Beach to erosion. So yeah. and it does have salt marsh behind it. Mm -hmm. So it is one of Gloucester's beaches that has the potential for being able to migrate. So anything that we would do to build up that beach that would be to stop raking it, for example, will also will both help us hold on to our beach longer, but will also help the birds. That's yes. one right. area there's where I think there's, 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 there's overlap. Yeah, the, yeah, there are a lot of and there are, And there are places where actually sea level rise will improve local habitats. There are a whole bunch of places where um, uh, what used to be sort of salty wetlands uh, or brackish wet, wetlands, and we built roads and dikes and things like that. Mm -hmm. um, if we allow those, if we open those up uh, to a certain extent, that ends up returning them to a natural habitat that are more biologically diverse. Are there examples of that on Cape Ann? Oh yeah. Which is the way Such Good as... Harbor Beach used to connect through Underbass Avenue to Gloucester Harbor and Gloucester Harbor would flush right out yeah. through Good Harbor right. Beach. Well, I don't it was want that to flow. upset anybody's neighbors in any place, but there are, there are several. If you drive, let me put it this way. If you, if you drive along the eastern edge of Cape Ann, you will notice some places where there's a pond on your left if you're driving north, and those might be the kinds of places that I'm talking about. I, I see. I okay. see what you mean. Very diplomatic. Um, well, we, we only have a short time left, actually, and I wanted to just see... Um, and ask, like, Deborah, what was your greatest learning uh, from your work with, with birds? And um, was there something that you learned that changed you? <laughs> oh, one of the things that I, I was really lucky, I think, to be able to do when I was writing The Narrow Edge was that I was able to travel from 
these remote beaches in Tierra del Fuego all the way up to the nesting grounds of shorebirds up in the Arctic. So I could follow them along the entire flyway. And every place I went, I was deeply moved by the dedication of the individuals living in the different localities and what they were doing to really try to give these birds safe passage. Mm -hmm. And it was, was really moving to watch it because when you think about this migration, it's been described, shorebird migration, as the sort of necklace between uh, South America and the Arctic, these stopovers. And um, with everybody focusing on each different stopover, you can actually make a big difference. And I was, I was deeply moved by the dedication of so, so many people who really have the long view and who are going to work through all of the um, clashes and all of the disagreements until it works. That's great. And we yeah. certainly have a community of dedicated people here on Cape Ann to protect yeah. our coastal birds. That's all the time that we have on Cape Ann Report. Um, Deborah, Scott, and Chris, thank you so much for joining me. Um, check us out on social media, and I hope that you'll tune in another time to check out uh, Cape Ann Report. Until the next time, take care.